Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Ruddick fits enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife is so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it, no luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. the use of ha-ha for an old-timey letter. <laughs> LOL. I know. I kept reading it like, really? Or my favorite, Le Mufeo. <laughs> I'm going to say that like that all yeah. the time now. <laughs> oh, no. You've changed my life. <laughs> I always read LMFAO. Yeah. Le Mufeo. I love that. It sounds like a party. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. We are back for part two of the Ripper Murders. Woo. It's weird to cheer about, but, you know, still. (laughs) Thank you guys for all the kind feedback about part one. People seem to like it. Yeah. That was very nice. We're so glad you're enjoying our coverage. I know we all want to get back to the story fast, so I'm going to keep the opening announcements real short. Oh, and before I get to them, the letter in the opening is the Dear Boss, one of the three letters that is supposedly written by Jack the Ripper to the London police or the Whitechapel police at the time, which we will get into next week because there's so much about the victims to cover that we really wanted to give them their full due and then Mm -hmm. we'll move on to all of the other stuff next week and we'll talk about suspects and stuff. Okay, so we really, really, really don't want the skin of an 1888 Whitechapel resident. For sure. No, that sounds terrible. Yeah. So if you could do us a huge favor and send us a little brightening validation, we would greatly appreciate it. Mm. I can feel the soot in my pores. Yeah. Just like seeping through the literature as I read it. Mm. Feel Mm. like grimy, you know? I feel that. Right. So how do you help us out? Well, hop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does make all the difference in the world. And if you want to keep us out of the back alley of podcasting, you can head on over to Patreon, where for, like that segue? (laughs) (laughs) 
Where for just a little monthly donation, you gain access to an extra monthly mini-sode, our additional monthly patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, discounts in our merch store, a special gift from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all that is too overwhelming, very overwhelming, you can simply share our content to your social media feeds and tell all your friends. Then bring your friends over to become fiends, and we can all have fun together. I want so many new friends. I know. It's the dream. We've made a lot for this podcast. I would mm-hmm. like a lot more. Yeah. More friends is better. Can never have enough. Never have enough <laughs> fiends. Yeah. Good. Okay. That's our commercial. <laughs> Cut. Yeah, bring all your friends over to our Facebook group, too. It's fun over there. Also, next week, we will feature our interview with our friendly neighborhood corpse reviewer. That's right. We tricked a real forensic scientist into coming onto our podcast. <laughs> we did it. Mm-hmm. We sure did. <laughs> And oh, that's a good evil laugh. Thank you. You're welcome. Did you practice it? No. Just came out? It's just what I do. Maybe you are Jack the Ripper. Mm. And the leprechaun. Very, very interesting, <laughs> Holly. Leslie's stroking her invisible beard. Yeah. It's good. It's a short one. <laughs> so it's like a little goatee. Mm. It's fine. We like it. So, yes, our friend, the corpse reviewer, will be discussing what he thinks happened in Whitechapel in 1888. We'll go over the forensic evidence, crime scene photos, and all the science most people tend to leave out of this case. Or they just talk about the old science. I want to talk about what new science thinks about this stuff. Yes. I'm really super excited to learn new things because I love learning new things. Don't you, Leslie? Yeah. Excellent. And I hope all of you guys do, too. Uh, There are links to the Corpse Reviewer's Instagram accounts, or rather accounts that he frequently contributes to. One of them is the Corpse Reviewer. He has a new one called The Bride of the Corpse Reviewer, which is really fun because that is just forensic science, not Mm. like movie stuff. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so you should guys, um, you should guys, I'm doing great tonight. (laughs) (laughs) You guys. You should guys should do the should guys. (laughs) Woo! Anyway, I'm going to put the links to those Instagram accounts in the show notes, and you guys can click on them and follow and enjoy. And I think that's all the business I have. Leslie, do you have any business to add? Well, for the sake of time, I think I'm just going to hold off, and (sighs) we can do it another day. I got so excited. You were like, well, and I thought, oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. No, we just, we have a lot to do today, so I can wait. I can wait. All right. Just, like, hold on to it for one more week. Yeah, it'll be hard, but in the finale, maybe <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> You're gonna turn into the Jerry Maguire kid and be like, the human headways ain't bad. <laughs> and I'm gonna love every minute of it. All right, then, if that's all we have. Yes. Then on with the show. When we last left off, we had just seen Annie Chapman murdered in the backyard, or back garden, if we're being Mm -hmm. British, of number 29 Hanbury Street. Annie was left six inches from the back step. Her throat had been slit and she had been disemboweled. A leather apron lie in a bowl of water not far from her body, causing the public and the press to begin referring to this mysterious killer as Leather Apron, as we heard in the letter in the opening. We know that a man named John Pizer, a local Polish-Jewish shoemaker, went by the nickname Leather Apron and had a history of harassing prostitutes with a knife. But John Pizer also had an alibi for the nights of the killings. Annie was murdered on the 8th of September in 1888, and a coroner's inquest with my guy, the right fabulous, Win Edwin Baxter, occurred on the 10th. Yes, yes, yes. I need everyone to weigh in on this picture. Y'all saw him, right? You saw him. We all did. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> he's so much. If you have so fancy, isn't he great? Yeah. I I wish I knew why he was wearing that outfit and standing in front of a throne mm-hmm. and holding documents. I feel like it's like a Freemason thing or like something with law school. It had to be like a ceremonial thing, but it is a nuts picture to yeah. be your representation. The photographer was just like, grab a prop. <laughs> Take the scepter. Where's the throne? I want also the medallion. (laughs) It's a lot in one picture, but I'll get it. Listen, listen. I I deserve all of this. Also, documents. What are they? We don't know. (laughs) Maybe he was just really nervous when he was posing for that. And the guy was trying to make him feel better. And he was just like, like, be fun with it. He's like, okay. (laughs) Maybe he's a really, like, quirky guy. And he's, like, wonderful. I think he is eccentric. But mm-hmm. also, I think that might have been some sort of law school, very fancy graduation yes, or something. I don't know. I want to believe he was just like, this is how I prefer to have my photo taken. Yeah. You only get one as it's like 1870. So. I think he was really nervous and it was just a way for him to relax. <laughs> I'm on board with all theories, but he looks wild. He and does. if you guys haven't seen the picture, go over to our Instagram and look at the picture of when Edwin Baxter, the David Rose of 1888 Whitechapel. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. (laughs) That's what I picture him as. So uh, it was determined that on the 26th of September, Annie, this is when they determined that Annie was murdered by, quote, persons unknown. So that's the end of her inquest by the coroner, which they don't say who did it. They just say what was done. And the killer was likely the same person who who murdered at least Mary Ann Nichols, if not also Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram. Tabram. I can't do it right. It's okay. (laughs) It's one of those two, you guys. But scarcely a week would go by after Annie's inquest ended before there was another murder. And then another. This time, two bodies were found on the same day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were that of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. On Sunday, September 30th at 1 a.m., Louis Dimeschultz, the steward of the International Working Men's Educational Club, which we will get back to in a minute, was driving his cart along in Dutfield's yard, which was inside the gateway of Number 20 Burner Street, when he noticed his horse veer off the road to avoid something. He saw, quote, a dark parcel lying in the road and stopped to see what it was. As it turns out, it was the body of a woman with a deep knife slash to her throat, but no other bodily injuries or maladies. So she just had her throat slit. She was quite dead, but still very warm, and they say that blood was still flowing from the wound on her throat. Now, does that mean that she was still alive? We will ask an expert. Put a pin, like, right there. Okay. Because you don't actively bleed after you're dead, is what I have been led to believe. Maybe gravity was just making it drip out or something? Yeah. They said blood was still flowing from the wound on her throat. But wouldn't that, I would they be saying that because it was like new, it was fresh, like it had just happened? Because I have that in some other parts where, and then within minutes it's clotting. That could be it. So did they say how, what the body felt like? Was it warm Yeah, we're going to get there in a second. No, she was warm. So yeah, so it probably just happened. Yeah, no, they definitely were there within like 10 minutes. Yeah. But I didn't know how Mm -hmm. long. Yeah, but anyway. Um, so it was suspected that she was killed just minutes earlier. Oh, I had didn't have that in my notes. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Woo, you got it right. I'm taking the pin out. You should. <laughs> Throw that pin away. I'm still going to ask him. Oh, okay. um, Lewis then knew it was time to call the damn cops, except there was no way to do that, so he just rode his cart off in a hurry, hoping he would run into one real quick, which of course he will. Mm-hmm. Now, a word about the International Working Men's Association, which this, this building. <laughs> I was th- like, I don't care. <laughs> You're going to in a minute. I know. 
Um, so this building is the International Working Men's Educational Club, and it is from the association. That's the place where Louis Dimescholtz worked, and it's often glossed over in an attempt to make it look like a Jewish recreational center, because as I mentioned before, they really, 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 really wanted to make the Ripper Jewish back then. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of people did. Here's the thing. The International Working Men's Association did, in fact, have a lot of Jewish members at the time in Whitechapel, but that's not who founded it or what it was centered around. The International Working Men's Association was, quote, an international organization which aimed at uniting a variety of different left-wing socialist, communist, and anarchist groups and trade unions that were based on the working class and class struggle. It was founded in 1864 in a workmen's meeting held in St. Martin's Hall in London. Its first Congress was held in 1866 in Geneva. Members were English, Irish, Polish, German, French, Czech, and Italian, including a little-known German journalist named Karl Marx. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now, they had lots of meeting halls and clubhouses. Karl Marx did not hang out in all of them. But this was not a room full of Jewish men playing backgammon. It was a socialist, communist, anarchist clubhouse. While these may or may not be politics any of you guys agree with, uh, anyway is fine, there is one thing that I can say for sure. A lot of radical men, and not in the 80s sense of like, they're totally radical, Mm -hmm. but radical as in politically extreme. A lot of radical men hung out there, and they were from all over the place, and they were mad a lot. Mm. So take that for what it's worth. But you can't just say, like, this is the, you know, where a bunch of Jewish guys hung out and played games. Right, it's not no, the it's YMCA. Not. <laughs> yeah, it's that's not that at all. <laughs> so, and, and a lot of the articles I read just kind of brushed it off as that. I'm like, no, this is a bunch of, like, angry anarchists. Right. Which to me is just, just so different. <laughs> oh, and Dutfield's yard, where they find Elizabeth Stride's body, was a yard, it's called a yard, located between the Working Men's Educational Club and number 42 Burner Street, which was used by a local cart maker. Now, they call it a yard, but when you think of a yard, you think of like a big open area, right? It's like a courtyard. It's an alley. Right. Oh. Yeah. I saw pictures of it, which I will post. It's, an, it's a glorified alley. Oh. It's very small. You could, like, the buildings are maybe nine foot apart from each other, and it's just cobblestone in the middle, and then it ends in another building. That's weird. Yeah, everything I read led me to believe this was, like, way out in, like, a, a really abandoned type area. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's, a, it, it's nuts. Anyway, it's not big, and I have no idea why it has such an expansive title, but the description of these events makes it seem like it occurred in some obscure field, and it did not. It's still a city. So, in short, Elizabeth Stride was found in an alleyway, near a meeting hall of a bunch of political anarchists. Mm. But language will tell you otherwise. Now, these people could have been well-behaved, or they could have been not. We don't know. Meanwhile, just 45 minutes later, Catherine Eddowes' mutilated body was found by police constable Edward Watkins at the southwest corner of Mitre Square, which was about a 12-minute walk from Burner Street. It was quickly determined that she had been killed less than 10 minutes earlier by a slash to the throat from left to right, with a sharp, pointed knife, resulting in a wound that was at least six inches long. Her face and abdomen were mutilated, and her intestines were drawn out over her right shoulder, with a detached length of them between her torso and left arm. Her left kidney and most of her uterus were removed and nowhere to be found. Now, in the letter I read in the opening, he talks about taking stuff from other women. There is a second letter, which we'll read next week, that comes along with the kidney. Oh. Yeah. So we're going to just put a, a little memory in Catherine Eddowes missing a kidney. 
because it's like involved in a it's like preserved in wine and they send it to the police Mm. was that part in the movie that's like something i vaguely remember probably yes because this is a pretty big deal um and there's a whole we'll talk about it next week but there's a whole controversy where one doctor is like this kidney has a disease that she probably had it's definitely hers and then somebody else looked at it and they were like no okay we can say that's from a person but that's it we know it's not from a giraffe and like Mm -hmm. that's all we have Now, all this information means that if the same person committed both of the crimes we just mentioned, they would have had to kill Elizabeth Stride, hear a sound that scared them off, then walk quickly for 12 minutes and immediately find and kill Catherine Eddowes, pull her apart, and then run off into the night, which is quite a quick spree. Mm. The examining pathologist of Catherine Eddowes, Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown, believed that her assailant, quote, had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs, end quote, And from the position of the wounds on her body, he said that he could tell the murderer had knelt to the right of her body and worked alone. However, the first doctor on the scene, local surgeon Dr. William Sicaria, disputed that the killer possessed any anatomical skill or was after any particular organs. So most doctors don't think this guy is very good at what he's doing. The one guy did a little bit, but mostly it's cops that are like, well, he took, took out organs, so he's... He's probably a doctor. And right, the, it's mo- a lot of that's coming from the cops. Yes. They're just like, this seems very intentional, like yes. how they did it. And you're just like, you don't know. You're just looking at. No, they just don't see know that, that the yeah. insides were pulled out. And they're like, well, you know who pulls out insides are doctors and butchers. So it's probably that. Right. But then doctors get there and they're like, this is a sloppy mess. We would never yeah. do this. So his, this doctor's view was also shared by city medical officer William Cedric Saunders, who was present at the autopsy. Now, because of this murder's location, the City of London police, under Detective Inspector James James McWilliam, were brought into this inquiry. So these are different cops. We're not in Whitechapel anymore. We have London City Police, which are a little bit of an upgrade because it was, um, you know, qualified in a different city. So new eyes, new information. Now, at 3 a.m., the morning in question, a blood-stained fragment of Catherine Eddowes' apron contaminated with Fecal matter was found lying in the passageway of the doorway leading to flats 108 and 119 model dwellings, Goulston Street, Whitechapel. Now, if that is a very confusing sentence, it was to me too. This is an outdoor doorway that leads to the doors of two apartments in one building. And from what I can understand, um, because it's always worded the same way, quote, the passage of a doorway, which means a doorway with no door. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, I had to look that shit right up. So it's like an archway, and then inside the archway, there'll be like a door on either side. And the apron is found in the middle of that, the piece of her apron. Catherine Eddowes is also um, the woman whose shawl they will say they find later, which leads to DNA testing when we start talking about suspects. So, like, that's this one. I'm just going to implant certain things in people's memories for next time. (laughs) Above this passage of a doorway on the wall was a graffito. Mm. I like that word better than graffiti. I mean, I'm sure it's the same verb in different ways or something. (laughs) I didn't look it up. And it's in chalk. And it's believed to have read, quote, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. And some people think it said will not be, will be blamed for nothing. Sorry. That's whatever. And I would love to say that this was fully investigated. But instead, at 5 a.m., the police commissioner attended the scene and ordered that the words be erased immediately for fear that they would spark anti-Semitic riots. Mm. So this was not inspected at all. They just washed it off and went away. And it's understandable. However, Goulston Street was also 
a direct route from Mitre Square to Flower and Dean Street, which we know is where everybody lives. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, every other victim, they live on the in the lodging houses on Flower and Dean Street. So I'm not sure that washing that off was the best idea, as it seems to be pretty important evidence, but anti-Semitic riots are also terrible, so I can't, I can't really weigh in too hard there. So let's get to know these women, one at a time. Elizabeth Stride, nicknamed Long Liz. <laughs> Leslie was taking a drink. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did it come out of your nose? Oh, no. no. I held it in. Oh, I good. held it in. Woo! Elizabeth Stride, Long Liz. Liz. Like she took a long stride. So they right. called her Long Liz. Yeah. It's so perfect. <laughs> she was born Elizabeth Gustav's daughter? Gustav's daughter? Yes. On November 27th, 1843 in Sweden. So she's got a different background altogether. She was raised Lutheran and grew up on a farm and began working as a, a domestic servant when she turned 15. But unlike the other canonical victims, Long Liz began working as a prostitute by choice in her early 20s. Good for her. I mean, <laughs> I guess, because she was set up with domestic work, and she lived on a farm with her family, mm-hmm. and she was doing farm stuff, but she was like, you know what I want to do mm. is I want to be a sex worker. <laughs> you know what I'm good at? <laughs> maybe, maybe she was real good at it. Maybe. I, it seems to me like she must have been. But, but this is different than everybody else because she chose it, and everybody else was forced into it. Right. And she started this in her early 20s. Her first arrest for prostitution was in the spring of 1865. Then in the same few months, Long Liz was also treated for venereal disease and gave birth to a stillborn baby girl. Mm. Yeah, which I'm willing to bet the two are related. And that's pretty tough. Yeah. That August, Elizabeth's mother died, also rough, leaving her with a small sum of money, which she then used to move to London. Now... Long Liz loves a lie. Okay. That was a good sentence, too. It was, yeah. Um, And so when she moved to London, she told some of her friends that she had a job working as a live-in maid for a wealthy gentleman. Mm -hmm. And then she told other friends that she was going to visit relatives. Okay. We have no idea why she was actually moving there. She just moved there. She learned to speak both Yiddish and English in London and briefly dated a police officer before marrying John Thomas Stride a ship's captain and carpenter who was 22 years her senior, which is significant, in 1869. The pair owned a coffee shop together for a time and never had any children. So right now that seems cute. Like, she's an older husband. They own a lot of coffee shop. Okay. They're living this, like, fine little life. He has money because he was, like, a carpenter and a ship's captain. That's pretty decent. Yeah. But by 1874, the Strides' marriage began to deteriorate, and John sold the coffee shop due to financial hardships. The couple separated in 1881 and then got back together again a few times before Liz was admitted to a workhouse. So that means, like like I explained before, the poorhouse, like you have to be there. Mm-hmm. And following her stay there, she then took up residence in one of several common lodging houses on Flower and Dean Street in Whitechapel. <laughs> Big mistake. Like, don't ever live there. It's not good. It's not going well. And, but those were the those were some of the nicer ones compared to some of the other places. Maybe you want to live in the filthy place because they don't want to go there. And some of them are way more filthy. Like they would pack even more people than what they do here. Ew. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of the when I was, you know, researching Whitechapel area last yeah. week, mm-hmm. they were saying that that there was a few areas that were a little scarier mm-hmm. than than some of the other East End London mm-hmm. spots, but. Whitechapel wasn't the worst of all of them. Like, there were lodging houses that were even, like, that were way worse, where even the poor would be stuck. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine what 
the worst of that would have been like. It would have been so where like, I like was the saying. Worst, the bottom. Yeah, I know. They were saying for, so say you have like a one-room apartment. Yes. And you might have to split it with two to three families, which is a lot. because like, And that's like how big are your family? What if your you family know, has eight that? kids? Exactly. But then in some of the other areas, they were closer to like eight families would sometimes be stuff in a Like you would literally just be, find a corner and just, or a spot and just sit there and fall asleep. But at least they were out of the rain and it just and because guess. they were too poor to afford just the two family yeah. room. So yeah. I mean they could probably have a fire in that room and all those people were warm, so you weren't freezing to death. Although in the summertime, I would be outside. I would not be sleeping in that. Sure, yeah. That's disgusting. And the smell, I don't even want to talk about it. I'm sure you get used to it. Nose blind. <laughs> yeah. Now not like that gross thoughts in everyone has had. In 1884, John Stride died of tuberculosis. Unfortunate, but remember, he was like a lot older than her, too. Fun fact in the years after his death, Liz would tell men that her husband and nine children remember, she had no children drown in the 1878 sinking of the Princess Alice in the River Thames. According to Elizabeth, she and her husband had been employed upon the steamer. Although she had survived the accident, although she had survived the accident, sorry, by climbing the ship's mast. But as she did so, she had been kicked in the mouth by another survivor during the sinking, and this injury to her palate had caused a permanent stutter. All of which is a total lie. She would put on the stutter and put on the stutter. I'm not making fun of actual stutterers. I'm making fun of someone who made up a stutter. And, like, not a single part of that happened. That is wild. Long Liz loves a lie. (laughs) I don't know. But it's a really good lie. Like, at least Mm -hmm. that's a very exciting and interesting lie. She likes a backstory. She does like a backstory. (laughs) Um, She carried out the rest of her days in the common lodging houses, working as a prostitute and sometimes a domestic servant. Uh, Elizabeth, or Liz, as I have called her periodically, was described by most people who knew her as, quote, quiet and mild-mannered, though I do not believe this for a second because she was brought before the Thames Magistrate Court eight times for public drunkenness disorderly conduct, and obscene language. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Although, you know what? Maybe that was mild-mannered for the company she kept. Quite possibly. Maybe the rest of them were, like, more extreme. Maybe they were radical. I don't know if I can hang out with these people. (laughs) I don't think you can. (laughs) I I, I, I can't. That's too rough. (laughs) On the day before her murder, Elizabeth cleaned a few rooms, and then, because she was working also as a servant, and then went out dressed in a black jacket and skirt with a posy of a red rose in a spray of either maidenhair fern or asparagus leaves. So this is like a corsage, like a put on the lapel of your jacket type thing. So okay. she was nice. She looked nice. Mm-hmm. And black and like dark colors were very in then. So she was posh. Mm-hmm. She had her little like pretty like pop of color. Yeah, it hides all the dirt. And that's why it was big. Nice. Even in London. <laughs> Nice. You can't see my filth in this black outfit. Yep. (laughs) Um, And her whole outfit was set off by a black crepe bonnet. So she looked like a fancy lady. And man, people really liked a gal in a good bonnet back then. They did, That's the second time a bonnet has been brought up. I have have a bonnet in my story. You do? do? Bonnets are a big deal. I don't know what, I don't know. And remember, Elizabeth was a sex worker because she wanted to be, not because desperation threw her into it. And I think the difference really shows. She has this, like, nice outfit, and she's, mm-hmm. like, out with people. She's not, she's like— She's, like, like, more of an escort. Yeah. Like, or that's, like, how she probably 
thought of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, she mm-hmm. wasn't like crawling in the gutter for it pennies. Mm-hmm. So that night in her cute outfit, she went to the pub with a friend and then went back to the lodging house alone. And then after that, later, she went out and saw a couple clients. So this is common. A lot of times these women would go out for dinner and drinks with their friends, go back home, and then at like 1 a.m. they would go back out to the streets and find clients. <laughs> One of her clients was a, quote, little portly man, and another a tall, dashing gentleman wearing a peaked cap, black coat, and dark trousers standing on the pavement opposite number 58 Burner Street at approximately 11.45 p.m. Poor little portly man gets nothing. I know. Ugh. Now, according to her friend, Elizabeth had stood with this, quote, decently dressed individual, and the two had repeatedly kissed before the man said to her, you would say anything but your prayers. Oh. Yeah, which, like, if it wasn't about murder, probably, like, like a pretty hot situation. You're like, hmm. At first I was like, wow. And then I thought, oh, no, that was probably awful. Yeah. What if it wasn't? I know, it's hard. Such complicated feelings. At 12.35 a.m., Police Constable William Smith saw Elizabeth with a man wearing a hard felt hat standing opposite the International Working Men's Educational Club at 40 Burner Street in Whitechapel. The man was carrying a package about 18 inches long, having no real reason to... (laughs) His package. He couldn't hold it in. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He was holding it. Yeah. I mean, you would be proud to hold that. like, wow. (laughs) That's a lot. What a whopper. Well, that's we found the weapon. I wrote that and did not give it a second thought. (laughs) I got you, girl. Thank you. (laughs) Good job. So anyway, her friend didn't have any reason to feel suspicious, though we are both very suspicious. (laughs) Elizabeth Kim, sorry, the, the officer, continued on his, wait, sorry. This is a police constable, not her friend. The package really threw me off. I'm sorry. <laughs> so after he saw this guy carrying his 18-inch package, he continued on his beat in the direction of Commercial Road. Not that we live in Whitechapel and know where that is, but that's what happened. Between 12.35 a.m. and 12.45 a.m., a dock worker named James Brown, this story gets better and better, <laughs> No, <laughs> saw a woman named, what if it was the James Brown? <laughs> He's feeling good saw a woman he believed to be Elizabeth standing with her back against a wall at the corner of Burner Street speaking to a man of average build with a long black coat. He heard Elizabeth say, No, not tonight. Some other night. And then an hour later, she would be found dead. Oh. Yeah, so not tonight. Dead. Dr. Phillips, who was also the medical examiner for Annie Chapman, remember the guy that we were like, well, he has it more together than the first guy who took a nap. Yeah describes her body like this, quote, The body was lying on the near side with the face turned toward the wall, the head up the yard and the feet toward the street. So her head was like toward the inside of the alley. The left arm was extended and there was a packet of cashews, spelled very strangely, in the left hand. We're going to get back to that. The right arm was over the belly. The back of the hand and wrist had on it clotted blood. The legs were drawn up with the feet close to the wall. The body and face were warm and the hand cold. The legs were quite warm. The deceased had a silk handkerchief around her neck and it appeared to be slightly torn. I have since ascertained it was cut. This corresponded with the right angle of the jaw. The throat was deeply gashed and there was an abrasion of the skin about one and a quarter inches in diameter, apparently stained with blood, 
under her right brow, so her face is mangled too. At 3 p.m. on Monday at St. George's Mortuary, Dr. Blackwell and I made a post-mortem examination. Rigor mortis was still thoroughly marked. There was mud on the left side of her face, and it was matted in the head. The body was fairly nourished over both shoulders, especially the right and under the collarbone, and in the front of the chest, there was a bluish discoloration, which I have watched and seen on two occasions since. So I'm like, I don't know what that means. He's like, I saw it. I've seen it before. It's fine. There was a clear-cut incision on the neck. It was six inches in length and commenced two and a half inches in a straight line below the angle of the jaw, three-quarters of an inch over an undivided muscle, and then becoming deeper, dividing the sheath. The cut was very clean and deviated a little downwards. The arteries and other vessels contained in the sheath were all cut through. The cut through the tissues on the right side was more superficial and tailed off about two inches below the right angle of the jaw. The deep vessels on that side were uninjured. From this, it was evident that the hemorrhage was caused through the partial severance of the left carotid artery, and a small bladed knife could have been used. So this guy thinks that maybe it was a little bladed knife, like last time it was a big, huge knife. Mm -hmm. And that's an end quote, sorry. Dr. Phillips believed that Elizabeth's murderer had pulled her backwards to the ground by the scarf around her neck. So we've seen that before, the whole, like, choker and then slit her throat. Right. The most interesting thing about Elizabeth's investigation is that it appeared someone saw the crime actually happen. Hmm. Yeah. A man named Israel Schwartz told investigators that he had seen Elizabeth being attacked outside Dutfield's yard at approximately 12.45 a.m. by a man with dark hair and a small brown mustache who was approximately 5 feet 5 inches in height. So this guy always has a little mustache. He's of varying heights between 5'7 to 5'5". He always has on a hat and a long coat. And, and obviously, this is where we get, like, the very iconic image of Jack mm-hmm. the Ripper. I mean, they, they made it a little fancier than it mm-hmm. was, but still. So according to Israel Schwartz, this man attempted to pull Elizabeth onto the street before turning her around and shoving her to the ground. As Israel Schwartz had observed this assault, Elizabeth's assailant shouted the word, Lipsky! I don't know. Either to Israel Schwartz himself or to a second man who had exited the club amidst this altercation and lit his pipe. So a guy came out to smoke, and they think that maybe he knew the murderer. And he was like, hey! Oh. (laughs) No idea. Israel Schwartz, however, did not testify at the inquest on Elizabeth Stride because he was Hungarian and spoke very little, if any, English. And apparently no one in the whole of Whitechapel could have interpreted. That's the only man that speaks Hungarian? You don't have anyone that speaks Hungarian and also some English that could talk to him? It's nuts to me that they were like, okay, you don't speak English. Bye. I know. They just just didn't try. No, because there were so many people from different places there that I feel they could have found someone. Absolutely. They could have walked into that club and been like, anarchists, who speaks two languages? Yeah. I, I don't know. No money was found on Elizabeth at the time of her murder. So that's Elizabeth Stride. And then we have Catherine Eddowes. So Catherine Eddowes was born in Grazily Green, Wolverhampton, on April 14, 1842. Her parents were tin plate worker George Eddowes and his wife Catherine. The family moved to London a year after Catherine's birth, and her mother ultimately bore 10 other children. When Catherine was just 15, she was left orphaned after both parents tragically died. I know, it doesn't say how they died. And I looked at a couple sources and I couldn't found it. Fine, couldn't found it. (laughs) Lord. Confound it. I couldn't find it. (laughs) It just says they both died with, like, within months of each other, which is awful. 
After that, she bounced around from orphanage to family members to employers for a little while before she met former soldier Thomas Conway, with whom she fell in love and had two children. She also had a blue TC tattooed on her arm in his honor. Oh. I know. And this was in a time when ladies did not get tattoos. Right. So she was like, okay. Pretty she, badass. She's a cool, she cool bitch. She's a rebel. Bad bitch. She got <laughs> tattoo. <laughs> Catherine was five feet tall with dark auburn hair and hazel eyes. Friends described her as, quote, a very jolly woman, always singing. All right. And, quote, intelligent and scholarly, but possessing of a fierce temper. Mm. Yeah. In 1868, Catherine and Thomas moved to London and had their third child. While in London, Catherine began drinking heavily, and by 1880, she walked out on her whole family. Okay. Yeah, this also strikes me as not strange, but just different than the rest because, like, circumstances didn't leave her. She just left them. Right. A year later, so this would be in 1881, she was now living with a new partner, a man named John Kelly, at Cooney's Common Lodging House at 55 Flower and Dean Street in Spatial Fields, which we know means bad news for Catherine, who had also taken to sex work to pay for the rent. By this time, her, um, Thomas, her ex, had gone through every conceivable measure to hide himself and their children from Catherine for a time as he had believed her to be dangerous. Oh. So after she left, he, like, changed his name or, like, and, like, changed lodging houses and stuff. He, like, tried actively to not have her have access to their family. So I don't know what her deal was when she left them, but she was not well. Hmm. Maybe she was just, like, an angry drunk. Maybe. Uh, that's pretty common. That's just to give you an idea of, like, the state she was in at this point in time, too. So Catherine's life went on like this for some time. In the early afternoon of September 29th, 1888, Catherine told John Kelly, who she was still with, that she would go to Bermondsey. Nice. I had to really lean into that one for a minute. <laughs> to try to get some money from her daughter, Annie Phillips, who I guess she had found, who had, by this point had married a gunmaker in Southwark, but did not—she never returned from this errand. All right. Yeah. From this era. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to go see my daughter real quick. She married a gunmaker. She got some cash. Bye. Never came back. Seeing no other alternative after Catherine failed to come home with the rent money, John Kelly pawned his only boots and barefooted rented a bed at the lodging house just after 8 p.m. She left this guy having to sell his shoes. Wow. That's tough. According to the deputy keeper, John Kelly remained in the house all night. At 8.30 p.m. on Saturday, September 29th, Catherine was found lying drunk in the road on Aldgate High Street by Police Constable Lewis Robertson. She was taken into custody and then to Bishopsgate Police Station, where she was detained, giving the police the name Nothing, until she was sober enough to leave at 1 a.m. on the morning of September 30th. So to recap, the police said, what's your name? And she said, Nothing. <laughs> Great. That's not an option. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. You could say nobody. You could say I don't want to say. Yeah. Nothing? Nothing. What's your name? Nothing. <laughs> All right. Catherine eventually told the police she was Marianne Kelly of Fashion Street. Oh. Which I, I don't think is fake, but sounds fake. Like I could say, I'm Holly Jane Doe from Fancy Lady Avenue. <laughs> There's mine. What would you be? What's your Fancy Lady fake? Oh, no. This is what comes to mind. <laughs> what is it? Mary-Kate Olsen from Ashley Street. <laughs> Everyone's going to be so happy you brought back in the Olsen twins. 
<laughs> I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> so upon leaving the station, instead of turning right to take the shortest route to her home at the lodging house, Catherine turned left in a totally different direction. A group of men on her route claimed to have seen her with a man that had a fair mustache. So this guy always has a blonde mustache, too, which is, like, a little creepier. I don't that know is, why. That is creepier. Isn't it? Sorry, my brother has a blonde mustache. Does he? Yeah. He it's a like a, It's like now? a dirty blonde. Yeah. He's, like, brown, but he gets his, like, like, He doesn't blonde. have blonde hair. It's just the mustache. <laughs> to which his girlfriend says, you're not the only blonde in the family now, Leslie. <laughs> the mustaches? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Pete Holmes does a bit about men with a blonde mustache and how they're all like, I know, not great. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm sure Adams is great. I'm it sure is. It looks yeah, he looks adorable. With amazing. It. Yeah, he's good. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Adam. You can He'll be ca- excited. He's on the podcast, there not for go. that, but he's really excited now. <laughs> so the <laughs> group of men say say they saw her with this man in the red hat with the mustache, but. They were also kind of questionable because they couldn't describe Catherine properly. So they're like, well, we don't know who you saw, really. Oh, okay. So at 1.45 a.m. on the 30th, Catherine's mutilated body was found in the southwest corner of Mitre Square by the square's beat policeman, Police Constable Edward Watkins. Edward Watkins said he entered the square at 1.44 a.m., having previously been there at 1.30. So at 1.30, nothing. At 1.44, body. He called for assistance at a tea warehouse in the square where night watchman George James Morris, who was an ex-policeman, had notified nothing unusual. So he's a night watchman. You know what that means. Mm-hmm. All was not well. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm glad we could bring that back. An additional watchman, a man named George Clapp at Five Mitre Square, reported that he had not noticed anything out of the ordinary either. All was well. Because <laughs> of his last name. Oh, that's nice clapping. <laughs> And neither did off-duty policeman Richard Pierce at Three Mitre Square. So nobody saw anything weird happen at all. And they're all hanging out there, awake and walking around, talking about all as well. The subsequent post-mortem records of police surgeon Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown, who arrived at the crime scene after 2 a.m., state, quote, The body was on its back, the head turned to the left shoulder, the arms by the side of the body as if they had fallen there, both palms upward, the fingers slightly bent. A thimble was lying off the finger on the right side. Was she sewing? The clothes drawn up above the abdomen. The thighs were naked. Left leg extended in a line with the body. The abdomen was exposed. Oh, so her skirt was all the way up. Right leg bent at the thigh and knee. The bonnet was at the back of the head. Gotta get that bonnet in there. Mm -hmm. A great disfigurement of the face. The throat cut. Across below the throat was a neckerchief. They all had scarves on. The intestines were drawn out to a large extent and placed over the right shoulder. They were smeared over with some feculent matter, which is, I've never heard that word manipulated that way. Mm. But I guess if you're pulling out intestines, you're going to get some fecal matter about. A place of about two feet was quite detached from the body and placed between the body and the left arm, apparently by design. So they think that she was purposefully posed. The lobe and oracle of the right ear were cut obliquely through. There was a quantity of clotted blood on the pavement on the left side of the neck, round the shoulder, and the upper part of the arm, and fluid blood-colored serum which had flowed under the neck to the right shoulder, the pavement sloping in that direction. The body was quite warm. No death stiffening had taken place. 
She must have been dead most likely within the half hour. So obviously within a 14-minute time span if the one police officer was there at 1.30 and then at 1.44 she was there. Mm. We looked for superficial business and saw none. No blood on the skin of the abdomen or secretion of any kind on the thighs. No spurting of blood on the bricks or pavement around. No marks of blood below the middle of the body. Several buttons were found in the clotted blood after the body was removed. So where are those buttons from? Hmm. There was no blood on the front of the clothes. There were no traces of recent connection. Dr. Brown also conducted a post-mortem upon Catherine Eddowes' body that afternoon, noting, quote, after washing the left hand carefully, a bruise the size of a sixpence, recent and red, was discovered on the back of the left hand between the thumb and first finger. A few small bruises on the right shin of older date, the hands and arms were bronzed. She went tanning. <laughs> no bruises on the scalp, the back of the body, or the elbows. The cause of death was hemorrhage from the left common carotid artery. The death was immediate, and the mutilations were inflicted after death. So this is in the pattern with all the other killings. There would not be much blood on the murderer. The cut was made by someone on the right side of the body, kneeling below the middle of the body. The peritoneal lining was cut through on the left side and the left kidney carefully taken out and removed. I believe the perpetrator of the act must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs in the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. So do they know or do they not? Right. Because there are so many different opinions. The parts removed would be of no use for any professional purpose. I guess back then you could not use a kidney for any—well, you couldn't use a half a kidney at least. It required a great deal of knowledge to have removed the kidney. Kidneys are deep, Right. Kidneys are not easy to get out. Yeah, I mean, they're if you're getting it from the front, because I think they're closer She's to the back. She's not on her back. She's on her front. That's what I mean, yeah. yeah. So they'd have to, like, dig in. I guess that's right. It's the, Your kidney's not an easy one to dig out, now that I'm thinking of it at all. Well, if you're getting everything else out. I guess if you're just yanking stuff you're out willy-nilly. You're making there. Yeah. I don't know. Such a knowledge might be possessed by one in the habit of cutting up animals. I think the perpetrator of this act had sufficient time it would take at least five minutes. I believe it was the act of one person. In addition to the abdominal, abdominal, abdominal wounds, the murder had cut Catherine Eddowes' face across the bridge of the nose on both cheeks and through the eyelids of both eyes. Ooh. The tip of her nose and part of one ear had been cut off. Now, there are crime scene photos of her. Like, they're very graphic. They're too graphic for Instagram because she's fully naked and it's also like really, she's really cut up. But if you want to Google it, it's out there in the world. I warn you, it is graphic and awful, but you can see it if you want. So it was around this time that so-called Jack the Ripper ramped up his correspondence with the police, which we will get into next week. But they have a distinct relation to Catherine, as I said before. So we're just going to remember that. At this time, the coroner had linked together so far a canonical four with one killer who liked to slit his victim's throat and mutilate them post-mortem. But this isn't the canonical four, which means we have one more to go. The bloodiest of the lot, Mary Jane Kelly. Mary was the youngest victim as well. She was born in Limerick, Ireland in 1863 and moved to Wales as a child. Her family was moderately well-off. She had seven brothers and one sister and claimed to be from a very well-read, um, like well-to-do family. And she said that people said she was very smart and quite the artist. But everything we know about Mary Jane Kelly's childhood, we only know directly from Mary Jane. Mm. None of her relatives have spoke out whatsoever. And so a lot of this is thought to be exaggeration. Okay. Something she wasn't even able to read. 
because mm-hmm. during the Whitechapel murders, she would have her boyfriend read the newspaper articles to her aloud. Oh. Yeah. Don't we all do that? Read, read those for me. It's so tedious. I don't want to read. <laughs> I have other things to do with my eyes and brain. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Mary Jane was five foot seven. She had ginger or blonde hair and blue eyes. Unlike the other girls, though, she was said to be quite beautiful. I'm so sorry, other girls. This is not a comment on you. It's just how Mary Jane stood out. And it's mentioned quite a lot, so it felt relevant to bring up here. She was described as, quote, tall, slim, fair, and buxom. Mm. So when you're both slim and buxom, it just means you have big boobs. Yep. So good for her. Um, And that's why she's the one played by Heather Graham in From Hell. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I get it now. Yeah, it all makes sense. At 16, Mary Jane married a coal miner who was killed on the job just two years later. After that, she lived with uh, her family in Cardiff before relocating to London in 1884. She briefly worked as a tobacconist in Chelsea before securing employment as a domestic servant while lodging in Crispin Street in Spatial Fields. Hmm. Mary Jane then met a young French woman in Knightsbridge who helped her get a job in a high-class brothel in London's West End. Moving on up. Nice. She became one of the brothel's most popular girls and spent her earnings on expensive clothing and hiring a private carriage. Hmm. So, like, her life is not bad. Yeah. Reportedly, Mary Jane was invited by a client named Frances Craig to France. Frances invited her to France, only to return to England two weeks later because she did not like France. However, by the time she returned to London, Mary Jane had adopted the French name Marie Jeannette. Yes. Yeah, so she was like, I'm a fancy lady now. Okay. I'm a French prostitute. In 1885, Mary Jane moved to the East End and things began to go sour. Mary Jane took up living with a woman named Mrs. Buki for a while. That's amazing. I know. We don't have much on her except for she was an old lady that owned a boarding house and she, like, enjoyed Mary Jane's company. Okay. That was it. And while she was there, she got into debt with several high-end gentlemen procurers and began drinking heavily. Now, a procurer is just a man who purchased her services. Apparently, Mary Jane also asked for loans from these men, but could not pay them back. She also got into trouble when her and Mrs. Buki went looking for a large box of dresses that I guess were hers and someone else had borrowed, but the someone else was like, those are mine, you took them. Oh. I don't know, there's some weird story about her and dresses. Mary Doesn't she have way, like, isn't her profession how she gets paid by these men? Yes, but if she also was like, mm, can I have a loan? Yeah. Or like, I don't know. She said she got into debt with men who had procured her services. Mm. So maybe they were Maybe weren't. it was like investment things. Like maybe they thought she was going to like. Or maybe it was in between more. things. Like yeah. they spent a night with her and then a few weeks later she was like, oh, remember me? I'm so pretty and young. Can I borrow money because I need money to pay my rent? And they were like, oh, yeah, sure. And then they came looking for it later. Mm. I don't know. Mary Jane was young and naive, and her descent was quick. She hopped around from man to man for a while, living with another older woman. She also loves old ladies to live with. (laughs) She was a boarder for a while with this woman, and then she parlayed her patronage with a few of the men into living with them, each for a, a little bit of a time. During this period, Mary Jane fell ever farther into drinking and began gravitating towards the poorer areas of London. Her friends said that when she was drunk, she would either sing Irish songs or become quite angry and abusive or both. This earned her the nickname Dark Mary. 
Which, like, I'm sorry, do better friends. Called her, like, the fighting banshee or something. All of these girls get a nickname. It's crazy. And they're all Mary, though. Yeah. <laughs> In 1886, Mary met a young man named Joseph Barnett, and the two took up together. Joseph was a fish porter and loved Mary Jane very much. But she was too far gone at this point to be the woman he needed her to be, and the pair bounced around from location to location, each more shabby than the next. Mary Jane was destructive when she got drunk as well, not just to people, but also to things. At one point, she broke the front window in their home because Mary Jane and Joseph had, like, been able to rent a small house together at one point. Like, they were doing okay for a little while. Um, And she broke the front window, but since they didn't have the money to repair it, they just put old coats across the gaping hole Mm. and were cold. Joseph eventually lost his job fish selling for stealing, and Mary Jane turned back to prostitution. And then the two downgraded to sharing a room in a lodging house. And Joseph would have to go out on bitterly cold nights so that Mary Jane could use the room to entertain clients. Well, she used it or the other prostitute they shared the room with. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. A woman named Julia. So that's right. One room, one bed, two prostitutes, and Joe. I would watch that show. Yeah. Hell, I would write that show, but NBC will not take my calls. The new threes company. <laughs> That's right. Next week on One Room, One Bed, Two Prostitutes, two prostitutes and Joe. It's a good one. <laughs> now, this situation is too much for just about anyone to handle, so Joseph went out on his own, but continued to visit Mary Jane every day and gave her money every single day. Mm. Joseph mis- visited Mary Jane for the last time between 7 and 8 p.m. on November 8th of 1888. He found her with her friend named Maria Harvey. And Joseph didn't stick around for long, though, and apologized for not having any money to give Mary Jane. You don't owe her any money. I don't understand. He's a very nice man who loves her very much. Yeah. This poor man, shortly before Joseph left Miller's Court, which is where she was living, Lizzie Albrook also visited Mary Jane. She later recollected that Mary Jane was sober, and one of the last things Mary Jane said to her was, quote, whatever you do, don't you do wrong and turn out as I have. Oh, that's so sad. I know. Don't be like me. Then the next day she's dead. Fellow Miller's Court resident and fellow sex worker, 31-year-old Mary Mary Ann. Sorry, there's so many Marys. Mary Ann Cox reported seeing Mary Jane returning home drunk and in the company of a, quote, stout, ginger-haired man, age approximately 36, at 11.45 p.m. That's a weird approximate. He's about 36. Mm -hmm. And ginger hair, so leprechaun. (gasps) A light mustache. I'm just saying. I'd like you to develop this theory for next week. Okay. Excellent. I mean, it's pretty easy. <laughs> I want I want to hear it, though. <laughs> I want to hear it in the line of suspects. <laughs> Marianne and Mary Jane wished each other a good night, with Mary Jane adding, I'm going to have a song. Oh. Yeah. And then she entered her room with the man who closed the door. Mary Jane was then heard singing the song, A Violet I Plucked from Mother's Grave When a Boy. My favorite. Such a good jam. (laughs) She was never a boy, though. That's not part of the story. But I will find this song and post it for everyone as a sequel to our rousing chorus of Where Did You Get That Hat from last week? (laughs) (laughs) Which was 1888's hottest song. (laughs) Mary Jane was still singing when Marianne left at midnight. And when she returned approximately an hour later, that's a lot of singing. She just kept singing Violet on my mother's grave when I was a boy. At 1 a.m., Elizabeth Prater, who was sleeping in the room directly above Mary Jane, said that she went to bed at 1.30 a.m., and by that time, the singing had stopped. 
But not because Mary Jane had gone to sleep. She went back out to find another client. She was approached by a man of, quote, Jewish appearance, and here the fuck we go again, and, quote, aged about 34 or 35. An acquaintance of Mary Jane's and an occasional client of hers, a man named George Hutchison, is the man who saw that happen. And he claimed that he saw them and was suspicious of this man because although Mary Jane seemed to know him, this individual's opulent appearance made him a suspicious character in the neighborhood. The man had also made an obvious effort to disguise his features from George Hutchison by hiding his head down with his hat over his eyes as the two had passed them. A little note about George Hutchison. He tried to spend the night with Mary Jane but didn't have enough money, so then he followed her around and watched what she was doing. So, Mm. I don't, he's not great, but he saw some stuff, so that's what we got. George Hutchison later provided the police with an extremely detailed description of this man right down to the color of his eyelashes, despite it being the early hours of the morning. That's that's suspicious to me, because he just said he couldn't see his eyes, and now he's telling him the color of his eyelashes. Right. Liars know all the details. Truth tellers only recall what they can. So maybe George Hutchinson is something else. Just Mm. saying. He reported that he overheard Mary Jane and this man talking in the street opposite the court where Mary Jane was living. Mary Jane complained of losing her handkerchief, and the man gave her a red one of his own. George Hutchinson then claimed that he heard Mary Jane state, All right, my dear, come along. You will be comfortable. And then she and the man walked into 13 Miller's court, and George Hutchinson followed behind them until the door closed. Just creeping behind these people. Such a weirdo. Right? I'm like, why are we trusting this guy? He sounds like you should be exploring him. Mm -hmm. Then he said he did not see either one of them again and left around 2.45. The way he puts it, the last time he checked his watch was 2.45. Okay. Then Elizabeth Prater, who I'll remind you again, lived in the bed above Mary Jane, awoke at around 3.30 a.m. when her kitten walked over her neck. And she heard a faint cry of murder, which is what apparently all British Victorian prostitutes yell when they are being killed. Mm -hmm. I would just be like, ah! Back then, you just yelled out like, murder! Which is why we learned today to yell fire. Because nobody gives a shit about women, but a fire might hurt them, so then you got to come running. Mm -hmm. This is a fact I've repeated a million times because I learned it in school. Yep. Doesn't that make you sick? Yeah. It seems like a young age, too. I was like 12. Yeah. And at the time, it seemed like, wow, what a logical thing to do. And now looking back on it, I'm like, no, what a horrible thing to tell little girls. Mm-hmm. That their life wasn't important enough to yell rape because no one would care. I remember also learning that just as a young kid with, like, our school, like, mm-hmm. the whole school as, like, a child molestation kind of thing. Mm. Like, just as a kid, yell fire because then, like— Adults will look out the window. Yeah, because if you say someone is touching me or I'm scared or help me, no one will come. Yeah. It is hard, though. Kids yell on my street all the time, and I'm just like, should I call somebody? This is quite a a yell. (laughs) Yeah. But then they're just, like, jumping on a trampoline. (laughs) No, I think, like, you can can gauge it after a little bit if you stand Mm -hmm. out there and wait. But if a kid was, like, screaming in mortal terror— and I've I've honestly done this before. I've just called the cops. If yeah. I heard if I heard something that I thought was really bad, I'd be like, I don't care if a cop shows up at someone's house and it's nothing's going on. Yeah. I would much prefer that happen to like ignoring it and having yeah. a kid be like raped or murdered. Yeah. It's just fucked up that little it girls is. are taught to be like, well, other people are worried about fire. So if you yell mm-hmm. that, they'll come. Yep. Worry about little girls mm-hmm. and women. Anyway. Yelling murder wasn't a big deal back then, which is the thesis of our thing. Uh, And so because of this, Elizabeth Prater went back to sleep. 
Now, on the morning of November 8th, 1888, Mary Jane's landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant, an ex-soldier named Thomas Bowyer. I wanted to say Boyer, B-O-W-Y-E-R. It's a weird one to pronounce. To collect the rent. Mary Jane was six weeks behind on her payments and owed 29 shillings, which I believe is an astronomical sum back then. That's a lot, yeah. Exactly. So I guess some places, either some places are different and you can pay weekly or Mary Jane was just very charming and was able to convince this landlord to give her all of this time to pay and she just Mm -hmm. didn't. Shortly after 10.45 a.m., Thomas Boyer Bowyer knocked on her door but received no response. He then looked through the keyhole but couldn't see anyone inside, so he pushed aside the clothing used to plug the broken window pane because she liked to break a window. Mm-hmm. And then cautiously looked into the room where he immediately discovered Mary Jane's extensively mutilated corpse lying on the bed. She is believed to have died between three and nine hours before the discovery of her body. Now, hang on to your hats, you guys, because Mary Jane's body was in the worst shape yet. She, there's just, she literally just looks like a shell and pulp. Oh, no. Yeah, it's really gross. Um, so Thomas Boyer went back to the landlord and told him what he saw, and the landlord checked it out for himself, which he immediately regretted, and told Thomas to go and fetch the police. Thomas ran to the police station and choked out the words, Another one, Jack the Ripper, awful, McCarthy sent me, and inspect- to Inspector Walter Beck. Inspector Beck accompanied Thomas back to Miller's court and immediately requested the assistance of police surgeon Dr. George Bagster Phillips. He also gave orders preventing anybody from entering or exiting the yard. And thank God, because people love to trample all over crime scenes. Inspector Beck also arranged for the news of the murder to be telegraphed to Scotland Yard and requested the assistance of bloodhounds. This guy's game is on. Like, he's, thank God for this guy. And you know what? A lot of people say he is why the Ripper stopped killing. Because when you get Scotland Yard into it and suddenly their investigation is good, it it stands to reason, like, you're no longer dealing with small-town cops. You're not going to get away with it for much longer. Mm. And a lot of people think he stopped killing because they were just he just knew that he was going to be discovered. So he's like, I'm done now, bye. Some people think he was H.H. Holmes and then just went over to America and killed more people, mm. which is a nuts theory that we'll talk about next time. <laughs> so we're in the big leads of, of, of uh, British cops now. The scene was attended by Superintendent Thomas Arnold and Inspector Edmund Reed from Whitechapel's H Division, as well as Frederick Aberline, which is the guy they put in every movie. He's just added in here, but they like to make him a character and everything. And Robert Anderson from Scotland Yard, who arrived at the crime scene between 11.30 a.m. and 1 p.m. News of the discovery of another Ripper victim spread rapidly through the East End, and crowds estimated to number over a 1,000 people gathered at each end of Dorset Street. But thanks to the quick thinking of Inspector Beck, they did not touch anything in the scene. If he hadn't, like, shut that down, which nobody else did, they would have just ran through everything and touched her and all her stuff and, like, wouldn't be able to see it. Anything. Anyway, I give this guy so much credit. Superintendent Thomas Arnold ordered the room be broken into at 1.30 p.m. after the possibility of tracking the murder um, from the room with bloodhounds was dismissed as impractical, though I cannot imagine why. I feel like that couldn't have hurt. See what they do. Right. The inspectors discovered that a fire strong enough to melt the solder between the kettle and its spout had burnt in the grate, which was apparently fueled with women's clothing. I know this is weird old-timey language. Basically, this means... There's a fireplace in her room and a raging fire strong enough to melt the kettle that was inside of it was burning and the fire was, was 
women's clothing on fire. Oh. So, like, if she didn't have a lot of money, she probably couldn't afford burning, like, a raging fire. It would have been, like, you know, whatever little Mm -hmm. fuel she could find. And I don't know that she would have burned her own clothing. Hmm. So this was suspicious. Inspector Aberline thought Mary Jane's clothing were burnt was burnt by the murderer to provide light in the room because he couldn't see when he was, like, cutting her apart because uh, the room was otherwise only dimly lit by a single candle Mary Jane had purchased on November 7th. So it would have been pretty dark. After two official crime scene photographs, and there are actual photographs of this one too, um, were taken, and they're very easy to find to this day. I will probably post them because they are historical and I don't think they'll get reported, but we're going to see what happens. There's no, like, nudity in it either, so I think mm-hmm. we're okay. Mary Jane's body was taken from Miller's Court to the mortuary in Shoreditch, where her body was formally identified by Joseph Barnett, oh. the man that loved her and gave her money. Oh, That makes me sad. He was only able to recognize Mary Jane's body by, quote, the ear and the eyes. Wow. Yeah. I can't even find her eyes in the picture, so I don't know how he saw them. Her face is just like a shell. It's just like gore. John McCarthy, the landlord, also viewed the body at the mortuary and was also certain that that was Mary Jane. Mary Jane's mutilations were thought to be the most extensive because the murder was carried out behind closed doors without interruption. Her autopsy took two and a half hours, which seems not long to me, but I guess was at that point in time. Dr. Thomas Bond and Dr. George Baxter Phillips examined the body, and they timed her death to be about 12 hours before their examination. Dr. Phillips suggested that the extensive mutilations, like so everything that was done to her body, would have taken about two hours in total to perform. So this is considerably longer than they suspect that this person spent with any other body. They always say, this probably took five minutes. This probably took two minutes. This is two hours. And Dr. Bond noted that rigor mortis set in as they were examining the body, indicating that the death occurred between 2 and 8 a.m. Dr. Bond's official documents pertaining to his examination of Mary Jane's um, the crime scene and subsequent post-mortem examination state, quote, the body was lying naked in the middle of the bed, which I don't think is true because I've seen the pictures and she has on one knee-length sock and, like, you can see parts of her nightdress, so I don't fully understand that, but that's what he's saying. The shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body with the forearm flexed at a right angle lying across the abdomen. So this is similar to all the other ones. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow was bent, the forearm supine with fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at right angle to the trunk, and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubis. So she was spread eagle. Mm. That you can see in the pictures, but you can't see what would have been on display because it is destroyed. The whole surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, so they just like just took it out. And emptied of its viscera, the breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all around down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts the uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. So he would cut out pieces of flesh, put them on the table, then take out the organs and put them in a circle around the body. 
which is why people get real witchcrafty with this, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, The bed clothing on the right corner were saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. Well, there would be. The wall by the right side of the bed um, and in a line with the neck was marked with blood, which had struck it in several places. So there's your arterial spray. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all the features. The neck was cut through the skin and other tissues right down to the vertebra, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. The skin cuts in the front of the neck showed distinct ecchymosis, which means bruising. The air passage was cut at the lower part of the larynx through the... Guys, I didn't look up pronunciations because there's so much information. I think it's cricoid cartilage, though if you're supposed to pronounce it chrysoid, I don't know if that C is soft or hard. Yeah, I didn't look that one up. I'm so sorry, friends. I don't have a degree in anatomy. Also, and just so you know, ecchymosis is usually because of a bleeding underneath that's generally caused by, it's like under the skin, Mm -hmm. it's generally caused by bruising. Got it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both breasts were more or less removed by circular incisions, the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between the fourth, fifth, and sixth ribs were cut through and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the costal arch to the pubes, we just use pubes? Great. Were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front to the bone, the flap of skin including the external organs of generation, and part of the right buttock. The left thigh was stripped stripped of skin fascia and muscles as far as the knee. So this they just like peeled all of mm-hmm. the skin and muscle and meat from the bone. The left calf showed a long gash through the skin and tissues to the deep muscle and reaching from the knee to five inches above the ankle. Both arms and forearms had extensive jagged wounds. The right thumb showed a small superficial incision about one inch long with extravasation of blood in the skin. And there were several abrasions on the back of the hand, moreover, showing the same condition. Now, I know people say that they think she got the um, wound on her hands as a defensive wound. They say that a lot. Like, if they're trying to fight back, you can hurt your hands. And I read that one doctor said that. Again, no doctor agrees on anything, but that's Hmm. somebody's theory. And opening, on opening, sorry, the thorax, it was found that the right lung was minimally adherent by old firm adhesions. The lower part of the lung was broken and torn away. The left lung was intact, so we left something. It was adherent at the apex, and there were a few adhesions over the side. In the substances of the lung were several nodules of consolidation. I don't fully know what that one means. There's so much. The pericardium was open below and the heart absent. Where was the heart? I I don't recall it being one of the one placed in a circle, so maybe he took it with him for later. In the abdominal cavity, there were partly digested food of fish and potatoes, so she had dinner. Dr. Phillips believed that Mary Jane had been killed by a slash wound to the throat, and the mutilations were performed afterwards. Dr. Bond stated in a report that the knife used was about one inch wide and at least six inches long. So again, we're back to a great big knife this time. But he did not believe that the murderer had any medical training or knowledge. Good God. He wrote, quote, In each case, the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor anatomical knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or a person accustomed to cut up dead animals. End quote. 
It doesn't sound like it in this one. This sounds just like somebody going ham on a body. But that's right. But I guess that's where I could still see it just being somebody that just wants to cut up and then just remove things. Right. Like, so which not it could a doctor. also be why. It, right. Exactly. Yeah. They just want to see what's inside. What's inside. And maybe he was just placing things down could and be. it formed into I took some this sort. out. I got to put it here. Yeah. I took that out. I got to, you got to put it somewhere. Mm-hmm. What's he going to do? Throw it over his shoulder? Yeah. And he probably wants to look at it, so it just happens to be around. I think he for sure wants to look at it. Yeah. I think that's part of it, is that he wants to see all these things. Yeah. Because all of this violence is post-mortem. So mm-hmm. he's not doing it to watch someone slowly die. No. He's doing it because he wants to see what's inside. He's a little curious. He's gross. So we really have a lot of varying opinions here. Mary Jane's inquest, which was not performed by my favorite coroner in the history of coroners, but by a man named Dr. Roderick McDonald. In Shoreditch, it was concluded that she was murdered by persons unknown, and that brings us out of the canonical five. Oof. That was tough. Yeah. You guys, you got through it. You did it. I'm sorry that that last chunk of anatomical stuff was clunky on my part. I I did not not click on every single thing, (laughs) which I usually do. It was good. It was good. Thank you. When we have such a glut of information, it's just not always possible. So now there are several murders that are also related to the Ripper killings but are not canon and occurred after the last of the five when a lot of people believe the Ripper had been scared off. So, Leslie, Mm. you have two of them. I do. Why don't you tell us about two ladies while I lay on the floor in the fetal position for a little while? Give me your drink. Yay. All right, so my first one is Rose Millette, M-Y-L-E-T-T. She was born Catherine Millette. On December 8th, 1859, according to her mother, Rose was married to an upholsterer named Davis, and they had one child, a daughter named Florence, who was born on September 12th, 1880. They lived in various lodging houses, including her mother's lodgings on Pelham Street and Baker's Row Spitalfields. Spatial fields? Spatial fields, That's how I've been pronouncing it. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll do it that way. Spatial fields. Guys, tell us how you yeah. pronounce that. Maybe I said it wrong the entire time. Well, it's totally mind. fine because in Connecticut, I accidentally said Southington the one day. And I was just like, I don't remember there being a Southington. But oh, it's no. because it was Southington. <gasps> no! And I was like, oh, my God. And I've, like, gone there. I just didn't. I should have known better. It's Connecticut. Everything is spelt and said weird. That is true of Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything like is Greenwich. weird. Greenwich. <laughs> Greenwich. Greenwich. <laughs> All right, so for unknown reasons, Davis and Rose split up at some point in 1888. Rose had taken to drinking, and many of the people in Whitechapel and Spatial Fields knew her by the name Drunk Lizzie Davis. She also went by Millet and Mellet. <laughs> Drunk Lizzie Davis. Drunk Lizzie Davis. They are so good at naming people. I know. She was said to be working as a prostitute, but that's was she's, I think, one of the ones... That it's unclear. Or no, she's, yeah, she's the one that is probably a prostitute. Okay. Um, Her mother would be the one to identify her body later. Oh, tough. And then here are the events leading up to her death. At 7.55 a.m. on December 19th, 1888, Charles Ptolemy, an infirmary night attendant, sees Rose speaking with two sailors in Poplar High Street. She seems sober, but he hears her saying, no, 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 to one of the sailors. 
Charles thought that the situation was suspicious, but I guess he just didn't feel like interfering. People say no and murder all the time. Yeah. She's just like, there goes that suspicious again. Mm. Bye. At 2.30 a.m., Alice Graves sees Rose outside of the of the George in Commercial Road with two men. So I don't know. It might like be a, a pub bar. or something? Yeah. Alice testifies that Rose looked drunk at this point. Okay, so, so this she was is two thirty four, and now she's drunk. Yeah, and Got that it. was like four hours, four or five hours in between. You could get drunk that quick. Yeah, or no, that's many actually many hours in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at four fifteen a.m., Police Sergeant Robert Golding was on patrol and found a lifeless body in the yard, which we now know is basically an alleyway, between one eighty four and one eighty six Poplar High Street. We know this is Rose. Rose's body was still warm and lying on her left side. The left leg was drawn up and her right leg was stretched out. Her clothes were not torn or disarranged in any manner, and there was no obvious signs of injury. After some investigation, they would find that it did not seem like anything was taken from her since money was left on her person. Oh, she had money? As well as all her clothes, yeah. That's Mm -hmm. interesting. A lot of them were like their money was gone. Yeah. No, she had like everything. Wow. That, yeah. Doctors were baffled at the cause of the death for Rose. Of course, uh, rumors that the Ripper was like returning Mm because at this point it was, it had been a while because I think this was 1889. Uh, Or no, sorry, that was the end of 1888. So merely because Rose was known as a prostitute and because of the way her body was found, maybe police sergeant Golding arrived like on the scene before the Ripper got there so he couldn't actually like cut her up and yeah, do all these other things. Yeah, they say that with a lot of them. So Dr. Matthew Brownsfield's assistant, Mr. Harris, would soon determine the cause of death was strangulation after finding a faint mark resembling an imprint of string around her neck. So this is, like, a big thing. Like, there was a bunch of doctors down there, and they're all, like, trying to figure out, like, mm-hmm. what, what, why did she die? And then this, like, young kid was just like, oh, I can see, like, a little mark on her neck. And they were like, oh, okay. That's a ripper thing, too. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. a lot of them had, like, the scarves, and he would pull them by the scarf and then cut their throat. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, any thread that connected them, they wanted to pull it. Yeah. So the postmortem report prepared by Dr. Matthew Brownfield would state that Rose had blood oozing from her nostrils, a slight abrasion on the right side of the face, a mark on the neck caused by a four-thread cord during strangulation. Also on the neck was impressions of the thumbs and middle and index fingers of some person. No injuries to the arms or legs. There were blackish blood around the brain, and the stomach was full of meat and potatoes. Hmm. Yes. A couple of doctors and the investigators, they did not believe that she was murdered um, but just, like, tripped while drunk and then was strangled, like, by her collar in, like, a stupor. <laughs> <laughs> That's, like, what they really feel oh, happened. Oh, no. But there were some interesting things found during the autopsy. First, Rose did not seem to have a drop of alcohol in her body. So oh. this would also negate the woman, Alice, who said, like, I saw her drunk. She seemed drunk. And she then, just seemed drunk, though. Like, that woman doesn't know. Yeah. Maybe she's just being silly or maybe mm-hmm. she's just very clumsy. Yeah. And then, obviously, like, she, if she tripped and fell and she was strangling herself, I think she would have been able to get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, you would hope, you know. And there was nothing around her to, like, have been pulling that mm-hmm. she couldn't get out of. Oh, and then it was also revealed that she had never had kids. So, like, her mom was also lying about that, too. It was I love like, a lie. I know. Weird. Long Liz loves a lie. Yeah. 
the jury decided, so they obviously brought all this to the jury. There's a ton, just like in your other stories, there were several different theories of what actually happened, all this stuff. I skipped over explorations because we're going to talk a lot Mm -hmm. about, I'm going to try and tie them all together. If I went over every inquest, Right. You'd be so bored. Yeah. So this was back and <laughs> forth. And I think a lot of people were annoyed that, like, the assistant was the one that found, like, any strangulation mark or okay. something. Um, but the jury ended up deciding with the coroners, giving that the verdict of was of willful, willful murder by persons or persons unknown. It's weird that they jumped to that and the prevailing theory was not that. Yeah. Okay. Um, the police were pissed because they just felt like they were wasting their time looking looking for a murderer that didn't exist. Yeah. And there was no evidence of struggle around the area of the body. They also, like, couldn't find the murder weapon or anything like that, which is why they just think that maybe it just came from the collar. But, I mean, again, like, the person could have been strangling them with the collar. That was you know? that happened in, like, two or three of the other ones where exactly. it was a scarf around their mm-hmm. neck. And the only reason her case was connected to the Ripper was because one of the investigators thought maybe the Ripper had perfected the artist strangulation and only needed to have a small mark at that point. Like, it was just like he, like, figured out the right spot to, like, strangle I don't and think cut, cut it off. A doctor said that? One of, no, the one of the investigators. Okay, so I was going to say, that's not a thing. Yeah. Strangulation takes time even when you're awesome at it. Yeah, he just thought it was, like, <laughs> a sleeper hold and, like... <laughs> I love old-timey crime. <laughs> People are like, he's really good, so he could strangle her in two seconds. Yeah. That's not he how like strangling hit works. the right part. You yeah. It's like a pressure yeah. point. Strangle. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. That's what happened. Nice. So that was her. I also read that they thought she killed herself. Oh, that was, yes. Okay. So that was also a theory. But it was that basically she hung the herself. police were just like, oh, she's just, but she was just found, her body was just found on the ground. There was no mm-hmm. reason she wasn't hanging from anything. I don't know. She was just That's down. something I read. But they did. They did think that she just, like, strangers. Yeah. She, like, hung herself and fell down from wherever she was or something. Mm, yeah. But, again, there wasn't enough markage there. It was very yeah. light. Like, it took the doctors a while to figure out what actually caused her death. And then, then the young kid was like, yeah, hanging, I see a faint mark. Hanging that isn't, like, a gentle procedure. No. There would be bruising all yeah. over. I'd, all up in that neck. <laughs> You get all up in that neck. Yeah. So how else would she have died? She's choked on her that's meat why and potatoes. The jury, that's why the jury was, maybe. But that's why the jury was just like, I think somebody killed her. I don't know that it's the Ripper, but I think somebody killed her. We're not sure how or why, but we think somebody else did it. But I like that it was like willfully murdered. Like, this guy was like. By persons oh, unknown. Yeah. That's what they all say. And that's because they want, they, after a certain point in time, like, I can see the connection with the canonical five, but after a certain point in the time, they just wanted every murder in Whitechapel to be the Ripper. They were like, we have a crazy serial killer. Yeah. yeah. Or just somebody that just killed her for whatever reason. I don't know what happened. Bad transaction. I don't know. Bad transaction? <laughs> you never know. Never know. Okay. Next. 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 Unfortunate. Um, Alice McKenzie was born sometime around 1849 and may have been raised in Petersborough, which is two hours north of London and 15 minutes from Cambridge. I looked it up. It looks lovely. Very nice. She moved to the east end of London sometime before 1974. She was freckled faced and looking for a new beginning. Oh, that's cute. Mm -hmm. It makes me sad for her. From what I can gather, she did not seem to have any family, though she sometimes spoke of her father, who was a mailman in Liverpool, and that she had a son who was living elsewhere. Um, One of her 
uh, friends would say, like, I feel like maybe they, like, lived in America. Like, whoever the dad was, like, maybe took her, took the the son. I don't know. But they don't really know too much. And so, again, there could have been, like, some lying there. And there could have been a reason why. I don't know why she left her home. But maybe if she had a son out of wedlock or something, maybe she just had to leave where she was and and wound up in um, East End London. Uh, So she fell on hard times and found herself homeless in a strange city. About nine years after her arrival, she met a man named John McCormick, who'd be the one that would identify her body. And he was an Irishman who worked for a Jewish tailor in the area. He found her to be sweet and a hard worker, so he offered to let her stay with him and his girlfriend. It seems like they were just, like, friends. Like, he's had, like, this girl Mm -hmm. that ended up being his common-law wife, so. Common-law. I think that he just, like, took this woman in and— and maybe she did some stuff around the house for them, there too. There was a lot of, like, living situations of mm-hmm. convenience back then. Absolutely. Because you just needed a place to live. Yeah. Yeah. So Alice would then live off and on with them in various lodgings for the remainder of her life. Right before her murder, Alice, John, and at this point his common-law wife were living at Mr. Tenpenny's lodging house at mm-hmm. 52 Gun Street, uh, Spatial Fields. It was managed by Mrs. Elizabeth Ryder, who was a widower. Alice worked as a washerwoman and a charwoman for her Jewish neighbors. It was believed that she may have also been a prostitute, but that's where it's, like, kind of unclear. They assume everyone's a prostitute. They just assume just because, like, she was out late one night. Everyone else was. Why? Mm -hmm. You were too, I guess. Yeah. But this is where she, like, always seemed to have a job and she was helpful with, like, rent and things like that. Mm -hmm. So she did also have a bit of a drinking problem. So if she did any prostitution, it could have also just been to help either pay rent or pay for the Common. drinking. Yeah. Yep. Now, at the age of 40, Alice was drinking more heavily and was often seen smoking her pipe, which led her friends to call her Clay Pipe. That was her <laughs> Everyone's nickname. nickname is just the thing that they have. Yeah. <laughs> she had an... Your name is hair <laughs> and your name is face. I'm going to call you Pipe. Ooh, clay pipe. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Clay pipe, because the other one over there is wood pipe. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And she had an injury to her left thumb due to an industrial injury, so she was a hard worker. All right. Here are the events that we know of leading up to her murder. On Tuesday, July 16th, 1889, at 4 p.m., John McCormick came from his morning shift. He had stopped for a beer or two on his way home, so he was, like, a little drunk, and he wanted to go straight to bed. Before laying down, he gave Alice some money and for rent and necessities. And then John McCormick will say that this was the last time that he saw Alice. And Alice leaves without giving rent to Mrs. Ryder. At 7.10 p.m., according to Paul Mall Gazette, Alice took her neighbor, a blind boy named George Dixon, to the Royal Cambridge Music Hall. This was, I saw in another, when I was researching, I saw in another place that when while she was homeless, she had also made friends with, I think, another blind, like, kind of musician on the street or something. So it it seems like she cares. She has, like, a good heart. That's, like, what I was gathering from some of this. But also at this point, she is drinking pretty heavily. So who knows, like, I think that was where just she's to at. cope with awful life. Oh, then for sure, there. for sure. I don't doubt it. But just some of these things, I'm just like, that's she's just an alcoholic, and she's taken somebody to like a music hall to probably mm. get a drink and maybe yeah. find, you know. So Dixon testified later that he remembers hearing her ask a strange man to buy her a drink, to which the man replied, "Yes." And a little while later, Alice then takes Dixon home. So at least she's, like, not gone for long, and yeah. he doesn't know what the man looks like, just that she got a drink from that him. That was just, like, a chance encounter. hmm 
So at 8.30 p.m., Mrs. Ryder sees a drunk Alice at the house and hears an argument between Alice and John McCormick, which would question his original statement that the last time he saw her was at 4 p.m. Oh, uh uh-oh. Mrs. Ryder sees Alice leave the apartment building. Then at 11 p.m., John bumps into Mrs. Ryder in the halls and learns that Alice never gave her the rent. So that's how, you know, she didn't pay. Yikes. Then at 11.40 p.m., Margaret Franklin, Catherine Hughes, and Sarah Mahoney were sitting on the step outside of a barbershop or lodging house. Uh, they wasn't sure which one. Yeah. On Flower or Dean Street. Oh, Flower and Dean. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, sorry. On Flower and Dean Street at the side connecting with Brick Lane. So for all you people that know that. Alice. <laughs> I know I'm always like this specific road yeah. for people who actually know where that is. Yeah. Not Alice us. <laughs> was walking quickly past the ladies, and Margaret, who is Alice's friend, was just like, hey, how you doing? And she's like, all right, I can't stop now. Oh, no. <laughs> can't stop. Gotta go. Yeah. And she was in a direction going towards Whitechapel. The ladies mentioned to the police later that she was not wearing a bonnet. <gasps> no. Just a light-colored shawl around her shoulders. Gotta wear that bonnet, girl. At 12.15 a.m., Constable Joseph Allen takes a snack break under a street lamp in Castle. Yeah, is that like he took a break and then he was like, (laughs) after finishing his bite, I was like, a snack break. Obviously. (laughs) Under a street lamp in Castle Alley, Allen testifies that the alley was completely deserted at this time. After about five minutes, Allen noticed another constable entering the alley. So at 12.20 a.m., Alan sees Constable Walter Andrews enter the castle alley, and Alan leaves, because, like, there don't need to be two. Andrew stays in the alley for about, like, another three minutes with no suspicious activity going on. He's just, Got like, it. walking down. I was like, all right, that was that. All right. That was that sweep. <laughs> then at 12.25 a.m., Sarah Smith, who is the deputy of Whitechapel Baths and Wash Houses that line the castle alley, retires to her room, and she closes her window, which overlooks the alleyway, and gets into bed and begins to read. But, like, all is quiet at this point. So if anybody was going to hear, she 100, she was up, she would have That's a common thing. People are like, didn't hear anything. Everything was fine. At 12.45 a.m., it begins to rain in Whitechapel. Hmm. At 12.50, Constable Andrews makes his rounds back to Castle Alley, and that's when he discovers the body of a woman lying on the on the pavement. Her head was angled toward the curb and her feet were toward the wall. Blood was coming from what looked like a stab wound on the left side of her neck and her skirt was lifted, revealing blood across her abdomen, which had been mutilated. So this is sounding more like... A little closer. Investigators will make mention of her old stockings too. They were just like, they're old stockings. They're so mean. Yeah, but she is wearing them, which is sometimes like some Mm -hmm. of that stuff's off. This was Alice McKenzie, as we know. The ground beneath her body was dry, which led investigators to believe that her death was sometime after 12.25 a.m., but before 12.45 a.m. when it had started raining. And Sarah Smith, who was in that bedroom, testified that she just didn't hear any sounds until Constable Andrews blew his whistle. Whoever did this was quiet as hell Mm because it was very public where these crimes occurred. Mm -hmm. Alice's clay pipe was in her possession, too. No, clay pipe! Mm -hmm. Her friend's face, hair, and other yeah. pipe were very upset. I know. Yeah, she had a lot. Like, when they list the um, possessions, she had everything. So it wasn't, like, a stolen. Yeah, but I don't know that she had money on her or I if st- it was taken. I don't. I really don't think any of these crimes were, like, for money. Yeah. I don't Why would you so. hang out there and cut people up if it was for money? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to sound insensitive. Clay pipe right. is, is upsetting. 
So Lewis Jacobs is walking down the alley while Andrews is with Alice's body, and he tells Lewis to stay with the body while he fetches for help. And then at 1.10 a.m., Inspector Edmund Reed and Dr. George Baster Phillips are at the scene. We talked about them before. Yep. Inspector Reed notices that the blood continues to flow from the th- from the throat into the gutter, but would very soon, like in the next two minutes, would begin to clot. They like that detail. Mm-hmm. I guess, I mean, that's just determining that it just happened, yeah. basically. It was determined that the cause of death was from the severance of the left carotid artery from a sharp pointed weapon. Mm-hmm. Alice had two stab wounds in her left side of her neck, bruising on the chest, which indicated where the killer had held her down while cutting her throat. Mm-hmm. Five bruises or marks on the left side of her abdomen. The cut on the throat was made from left to right, which was the main reason that she'd be connected to the ripper. There was also a long knife wound from the bottom of the left breast to the navel. Dr. Phillips believed that the killer had to have a degree of anatomical knowledge, Mm -hmm. but he did not believe that this was the work of the ripper, though. Oh, okay. Even though the left carotid artery was consistent with the previous murders, Alice's wounds were not as deep or as long as the others, whose cuts went down to, like, the spinal column. Mm -hmm. Um, Alice had two jagged wounds on the left side that were no longer than four inches and did not reach, like, any air passage. And then Dr. Phillips believes that the killer was actually left-handed on this one instead of how— They're all left-handed. They're, all they, the Ripper crimes are supposed to be left-handed. Okay, I thought that they were—they, like, changed it to, like, he was a right-handed person. No. no, everything I read said that they think he's a lefty. Okay, so so they think that he's left-handed again probably because of the left-to-right cut. But he does acknowledge that there are similarities but suggests that this is just the work of a copycat, especially because it's— so long after, mm-hmm. but people are like, he took a break and he's coming back, which we know happens. Cooling off period. Yeah. Happens with serial killers, which mm-hmm. we will not name until 1980, but still. Yeah. So we know she's, that now. she's probably the, I mean, she's way closer than the other one. Way woman. closer. Um, but it's still not 100% on mm-hmm. how they found her. Um, I wouldn't say. She sounds pretty close, though. Pretty close. And obviously, they would have, if he heard, um, the constable walking back through, he would have had to flee the scene. Yeah, there are a lot of the ones that, like, don't have as many mutilations that they say, oh, we think we caught him in the act, and then he left mm-hmm. because the the slitting of the throat. Mm-hmm. Who, who can really say? Yeah. I mean, you could have. And a lot of that, too, was, I would say, was the um, the constable that found him was, like, this was like that, and that was like this. Mm-hmm. Like, he really believed. He was like, it's the Ripper. Everything looked just like him. I could tell. And you're just like, hmm. <laughs> could, could not be. It could just be that you want to make that connection. There's just it's so in your much head. blood everywhere, too. Like, how do you? <laughs> but also, if something like that is in your head, yeah, and then you see a murder, you're gonna be like, "Well, it's that." Yeah, absolutely. You've already put that in the back of my mind, so I'm mm-hmm. gonna assume this is so such a bizarre thing to say. So I'm just gonna assume every murder I see is the Ripper. Yeah, but I guess back then you did you did see some murders, so it's not exactly yeah. But that one was really close. Um, but for whatever reason, Dr. Phillips really just thought it was a copycat. Okay. And it very well could have also been they were trying to, like, calm it down and not yeah. make it super media hyped. I don't know. Maybe. People were, like, kind of crazy about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Oh, so, like, a little side note. Um, when I was reading about Elizabeth Stride's body being found, I said that she had a packet of cashews in her oh, left yes. hand. I did not want to forget this. In this sense, the word is spelled C-A-C-H-O-U, which is how I knew it was a weird thing. Um, And so they are a pleasant-smelling lozenge sucked to mask bad breath. So they're just breath mints. Okay. Not nuts. Hmm. I wondered, so I thought maybe you wondered, and I explained it. I did. Thank you. You're very welcome. 
The final two killings are really kind of a stretch to be involved with the Ripper. But for the sake of being thorough, I'll read through a brief write-up on both of them. But it's pretty widely agreed that these are not the Ripper. They're just, again, in Ripper mania, people are like, this is probably him too. Uh, So this one is only known as the Pynchon Street Torso. And I'm sorry of that. I wish this woman had a name, but she doesn't even have limbs or a head, so Mm. we don't really know much. A woman's torso was found at 5.15 a.m. on Tuesday, September 10th, 1889, under a railway arch in Pynchon Street, Whitechapel. Extensive bruising about the victim's back, hip, and arm indicated that she had been severely beaten shortly before her death, which had occurred approximately one day prior to the discovery of her torso. The victim's abdomen was also extensively mutilated in a manner that was kind of reminiscent of the Ripper, although her genitals had not been wounded and the Ripper seemed to focus on them quite a bit. The dismembered sections of this body are believed to have been transported to the railway arch hidden under an old chemise. It's like a nightgown or like an undergarment from back then. The age of the victim was estimated at 30 to 40 years. Despite a search of the area, no other parts of her body were ever found, and neither the victim nor the culprit were ever identified. So right off the bat, this doesn't seem the same. Mm -hmm. First of all, It's just a torso, and while the Ripper likes to pull things out, he doesn't generally cut them into pieces. Right. And they're all usually there. Second, she had been beaten up before she was killed. That's not his MO either. Third, there was no thing, no general mutilation. That was a big thing that he did. So I think we're kind of grasping at straws. Chief Inspector Swanson and Commissioner Monroe noted that the presence of blood within the torso indicated that the death was not from hemorrhage or cutting of the throat, as the Ripper was known to do. The pathologists, however, noted that the general bloodlessness of the tissues and vessels indicated that hemorrhage was the cause of death. So I'm not sure who we're supposed to believe here, but probably the pathologists, as they are actual scientists, and the police are police. (laughs) Again, we talked about this before. The cops are like, I think it's this! And they don't do any of the science part. Newspaper speculation said that they thought the body might have belonged to a woman named Lydia Hart, which I think is a great name, who had disappeared, but this was refuted after she was found recovering in a hospital after a bit of a spree. Oh, nice. Yeah, she had some fun. Another claim was that the victim was a missing girl named Emily Barker, but this was also refuted as the torso was from an older and taller woman. Chief Inspector Swanson did not consider this a ripper case and instead suggested that this was a link to the Thames Torso murders, which I did not research because I do want to cover them at some point because they really sound interesting. Uh, And these occurred in Raynham and Chelsea, as well as the, quote, Whitehall mystery. So these are three separate murders that are all very similar to this body. Monroe agreed with Swanson's assessment. These three murders and the Pynchon Street case are suggested to be the work of a different serial killer that they would then nickname the Torso Killer, who could be the same person as Jack the Ripper. Like, they think maybe he decided to evolve and do it different. But also, it could easily just be a very separate serial killer, which is more likely. Most Ripper scholars, or Ripperologists as they Mm -hmm. call themselves, agree that this was not his work. Okay. But it is lumped in with them, so why not mention? Now, the last of the murders in Whitechapel 
uh, was apparently committed on Friday, February 13th, Friday the 13th, Ooh. 1891. And so this is two solid years after the canonical five are done. When a 25-year-old prostitute named Frances Coles was murdered under a railway arch in Swallow Gardens, Whitechapel. Her body was found by police constable Ernest Thompson only moments after the attack at 2.15 a.m. Frances was lying beneath a passageway under a railway arch between Chambers Street and Royal Mint Street. She was still alive. Ooh. I know, but died before medical help could arrive. Okay, but, like, ask her some questions. Right. She didn't say anything. Not that we know of. Minor wounds on the back of her head suggest that she was thrown violently to the ground before her throat was cut at least twice, from left to right and then back again. Oh, I saw again, that one, yeah. Yeah, this is against type. He didn't. Mm -hmm. He wasn't Zorro. He didn't go one, two, three. It was just one. Otherwise, there were no other mutilations to her body, leading some to believe that Officer Thompson had interpreted the assault. He'd just been like, I think that this is what happened. Superintendent Arnold and Inspector Reed arrived soon afterwards from the nearby Lemon Street Police Station, and Chief Inspector Donald Swanson and Henry Moore, who had been involved in the previous Ripper murder investigations, arrived by 5 a.m. I thought you said Ronald Swanson. Like, I, I really wish <laughs> Donald Swanson. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> A man named James Sadler, who had earlier been seen with Francis, was arrested by police and charged with her murder. A high-profile investigation by Swanson and Moore into Sadler's past history and his whereabouts at the time of the previous Whitechapel murders indicated to the police that they may have suspected this guy to be the Ripper. But they suspected everyone to be the Ripper. However, James Sadler was released on March 3rd for lack of evidence. And that concludes our victims and crimes. Wow. Yeah, um, there's nothing to lead them to believe this woman was killed by the same man as Jack the Ripper, except for the fact that they were in Whitechapel and her throat was cut. Mm -hmm. Again, I just think they wanted every victim to be attributed to the same person. So, yeah, that was a lot. Yeah. Ooh, still with me? <laughs> Oh, I hope it was interesting, you guys. <laughs> no, it was great. I sincerely hope. So, uh, yes, next week we will go through evidence, which there isn't much of, to be quite honest. I mean, because they didn't know how to look for evidence back right. then. So basically it's the letters and then the few things they found. Okay. And then we'll go into, like, theories and suspects. And then we have our interview. All right. Can't wait to talk to a real scientist who's like, you pronounced everything wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have a timeout. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We'll give you a dunstap. I know. I probably deserve it this time. Anyway, toast? Toast. Oh, God. There's too many names. All oh, of the victims. All of the victims. Every single victim. And uh, patrons. <laughs> we have patrons Yay! this week. Yay! We have two new patrons this week. Woo! We have a best fiend, Chelsea. <gasps> That's my cousin. Chelsea. I love you, Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, girl. And we also have a best fiend forever, mm. Christina Freshshower. <gasps> Thank you, Christina. Yes. Right. Good goodies are going to come your way soon. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, there's so much reaching. Good. Yes. We reached across our, the table and time and space, mm. and we did it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not again. I'm not going to throw this one up because we have one more part. Oh my gosh. I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> Three's my lucky number anyway, so. Oh, yeah, that's right. You like yeah. things in threes. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, we have one more on the Ripper, our first three-parter, and it's going to be really good. I'm super excited for next week. Again, click on the links in the show notes to the Corpse Reviewer's Instagram pages and check out his stuff so you can be a fan of everybody. We could all be friends. We'll all be fiends and friends. <laughs> guys, it's so late. We're really loopy. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll see you guys next week for part three. Bye! Bye! Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Ha ha.